Hello and welcome to episode number 41 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm Chris Tripodi of DraftAnalyst.com, and Tony Pauline joins me, as always, to discuss all the latest news relating to NFL free agency, combine preparation, and we'll also have some thoughts on this week's film work from both the Big Ten and the Pac-12. But first, Tony, you broke some news earlier today on Twitter about Bengals wide receiver John Ross. Before we get into the specifics, we'll start with a little flashback back to April 22nd of 2017. People at the time were saying John Ross was being red flagged for a knee issue leading up to the draft. You posted a story at draftanalyst.com on that day stating that the Cincinnati Bengals had given Ross a clean bill of health and were considering him with the ninth pick of the draft. Ultimately, they did end up taking Ross with that pick, obviously based strongly off of his 4.22 second 40-yard dash at the Combine. But obviously, you need more than just speed to go in the top 10, unless you're Darius Hayward Bay and the Oakland Raiders a decade ago in 2009. Ross's film, besides the speed, was very strong. He was good tracking deep passes over his shoulder, solid route runner, underrated separation ability in tight areas, including the red zone. And that actually showed through this season, where he had seven touchdown receptions on just 21 catches. That being said, you broke the story today that the Bengals are now shopping Ross after just two years with the team. That report got a lot of traction, elicited varying opinions on both the player and the team. What else can you add? You know, I can tell you this, Chris. Right before the trading deadline during the 2018 season, there were teams who inquired about John Ross and wanted to acquire him from the Bengals via trade. That went nowhere. The Bengals have a new coaching staff and are now open to moving Ross, and it's something that I expect to happen. Now, it may not happen at the Combine, it may not happen in the month of March, but there's a belief the trade could take place at the latest during draft weekend. I got to add into this conversation, I heard firsthand from people from the Bengals front office and their coaching staff that they deny they will trade Ross, but you know what? Where there's smoke, there's fire, and as you saw, I was not the only one who reported the story that the Bengals are open to uh, trading Ross. I was just the first one with it. Yeah, I think Ian Rappaport came out about 10 minutes later or so with the same report as you had. Um, Moving on to kind of the facts and the meat of this, which teams would actually be looking to trade for Ross? I know there are several teams who are interested, but I'm going to tell you this. From what I'm told, the Chicago Bears are hot on the heels and have made inquiries about Ross. Now, obviously, injuries have really played a big part in Ross's struggles through two seasons in the Queen City. It also didn't ever seem like Marvin Lewis was ever fully in his corner, despite the draft investment that the team put into Ross. Why do you think overall he never panned out in Cincinnati? A variety of reasons. You know, first, Ross could never stay healthy, which was a major issue. Secondly, there are a lot of people who feel he was incorrectly used by the Bengals. You know, Ross is a vertical receiver, best racing down the flanks. And people I've spoken with tell me too much was thrown on Ross early in his career, and the Bengals never took advantage of his greatest asset, his flat-out speed. One person told me, rather than asking Ross to run complex routes, they should have just sent him down the field more often. Now, what would Ross fetch on the trade market in terms of compensation? It depends on when he's traded. It also depends on, you know, the supply and demand. The more teams that want Ross, the higher the asking price. I would expect a team that drafts late in the rounds to offer a third-round pick if he's moved within the next month. If the trade happens on draft day, it could be a late-round selection in the 2019 draft and then a conditional pick in 2020. Sounds like a worthwhile flyer to me for a guy who was only two years removed from being a top-10 pick in the draft, and there are obviously questions about how his team utilized him. 
Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes these speed receivers, these smaller guys that are just vertical threats uh, on the college level, you know, sometimes they take time to pan out. I mean, Ted Ginn uh, was not a world beater uh, early in his NFL career, but he's turned out to be a relatively productive receiver. Now, let's talk a little bit about free agency with the combine right around the corner. Several weeks ago, you mentioned that the New York Jets had an interest in defensive end Dante Fowler, currently with the Rams. Do you have any updates on that situation? I'm told the Jets are still very interested. I'm told the Rams will try and re-sign Fowler. And the other team that's showing a lot of interest in the pass rusher is the San Francisco 49ers. Now, is there any other news on the free agent front as it pertains to the Jets? A source from within the organization that I know, I've known for a while has confirmed something I've been hearing for the past couple of weeks. Expect the Jets to make a big push towards signing soon-to-be free agent pass rusher Ezekiel Ansah, formerly of the, or soon-to-be formerly of the Detroit Lions. It sounds like the Jets are really loading up on trying to acquire a pass rusher in free agency, possibly to set them up for a trade down in the draft if they don't feel like they like their options at number three or just want to recoup picks from that Sam Darnold trade last season. Yeah, absolutely. And why not? I mean, if it, we've talked all along. It's not a strong free agent class except for the pass rushers. The Jets have a lot of money in free agency. So if they could get one of the top pass rushers in free agency, it basically kind of puts that need on the back burner come draft day. And like you said, trade down, maybe get some offensive linemen, maybe get some receivers, maybe get a young pass rusher that they can develop down the road. Now, Ansa's career has actually been pretty interesting up until this point. He had two solid seasons before his third year breakout, 14 and a half sacks this year, finished behind only J.J. Watt and Khalil Mack. Ansa was the next young stud pass rusher coming up besides those guys and a few others. The following season, he only had two sacks, 12 sacks in 2017 before he was plagued by shoulder issues last year, eventually had his season ended by surgery to repair a dislocated right shoulder. So obviously there's risk involved with whoever signs Ansa, but he could also come at a significant discount considering his issues with both injury and inconsistency. One final note before we move on to the combine coverage here. One year ago, we both saw an impressive performance from Washington State offensive lineman Cole Madison, who ended up getting selected in round five of the 2018 draft by the Green Bay Packers. Madison looked terrific in minicamp. There was actually a belief that he could develop into a starter for the organization, but he never showed up for camp in July and has ever since been on the Packers' did-not-report list. Tony, what's the latest on this situation? It's a very complicated situation. It's a personal issue. I'm not going to get into the details right now. The Green Bay Packers have been very patient with Cole Madison because of the situation that's surrounding him. But what I'm told is you can expect the Packers probably within the next couple of weeks to basically cut ties with Madison and just uh, release him from the roster. Now, moving on to the Combine, workouts start this Friday. Tony, you've been attending the Combine ever since 2001. Tell us a bit about the evolution of the event over the past two decades. It's been a huge metamorphosis. We've gone from, in 2001, when I started going, it was a basically a, a KGB event, which was locked down. You couldn't get to it. And now it's a big media circus. You know, I remember in 2001, when I first started going, there was no media center there as there is now. It was basically guys like John Clayton, guys like Chris Mortensen, who used to wait outside the combine workouts, which were then held at the RCA Dome. And the, the, the dividing line between 
where the players and coaches went into the workouts and came out was nothing more than a curtain. And the Claytons and the Chris Mortensons and even Rich Cimini of the uh, now of ESPN used to cover the Jets for uh, Daily News or was it Newsweek? Used to sit out there with their battery operated recorders and, and their notebooks, get what they could as the players and coaches were leaving the workouts. And then everybody would assemble at Shula's, which is in the Western Hotel because that was the gathering place at night and the information would flow as freely as the beer would flow. In fact, the more the beer would flow, the more the information would flow. And that's what it was like back in 2001. A couple of years later, they did put in a media center and it was just maybe a couple dozen media people there that slowly grew and grew. And I think what happened with the advent of the NFL network and with the punks like myself who were getting into workouts and, and reporting on, on the internet the NFL saw that they could tap into a gold mine, and that's why it's really uh, blown up to, like I said, the media circus there is now. I mean, in the past, you would have the 332 players who were participating in the combine. Each team may send you know, 15 people as far as coaches, general managers, front office people, medical staff there. So you may have 800 or so people when you combine the NFL teams as well as the prospects who are on hand at the combine. Now you're going to have more media people there than you will uh, prospects working out as, as well as uh, as well as the team personnel there does have his pitfalls. I mean, I was flabbergasted last year to watch the bench press being taken place in a pit, people cheering and booing and, and everything else. This is what the league wants. I mean, this is basically turns the NFL into a 12 month event. The uh, interest in the combine is off the charts. From what I'm told, it's going to be on ABC on major network television this year on Saturday. It's been wild to watch how, like I said, in 2001, there was no media center. There were a few uh, reporters there. I was scrounging around for information, basically to what it is now. Not only the media circus, but really the fan fest that the league has turned it into. Kind of sounds like what the Senior Bowl has evolved into uh, over the past few years as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Senior Bowl has slowly gone from what was basically a scouting event and more and more into a media event. So we'll go into greater detail later this week and over the weekend on some of the players that you're expecting to blow up at the combine without giving us specific testing numbers, Tony, which players do you hear will create a buzz with their workouts? Yeah. And what, what Chris means by that is when I would do our podcast from the combine, I'll probably get more into detail about what the testing numbers are expected from these players, but really you should write the following players names down. Montez Sweat of Mississippi state, Kendall Sheffield, the cornerback from Ohio State. Rennell Wren, the defensive lineman from Arizona State. Gary Johnson, the linebacker from Texas. Darnell Savage, the safety from Maryland. And another safety, Juan Thornhill from Virginia. These are all guys who I expect to test off this charts and do much better than expected and keep a close eye on Oregon linebacker Justin Hollins. Now, you mentioned Hollins in your Buzz article from the Shrine Game in St. Pete. You mentioned that he ran 10.6 seconds in the 100 meters as a high school track star. That list above that you just went over, full of defensive players, kind of goes hand in hand with the statement you made after the Senior Bowl that a lot of team executives are expecting as many as 70 of the first 100 players selected in the draft to come from the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to see a lot of speedy times from some of the receivers, but I expect most of the better than expected results to come from the defensive players. Now, earlier this week, you tweeted about another combine, a regional combine that's going to take place in Kansas City at the Chiefs facility in mid-March. You mentioned that the top 75 guys who did not receive invitations to Indy will head to KC. Maybe we should have talked about this earlier, but who are your biggest snubs from Indy who we can expect to see in Kansas City? 
you got to start with the running backs. And when we start with the running backs, we got to talk about Devine Zigbo of Nebraska as well as Ty Johnson from Maryland. Both should be at the combine, but this is what happens when you have more than 20 underclassmen running backs enter the draft. You have deserving guys like Zigbo and Johnson kind of left on the outside looking in. For the life of me, I cannot understand why underclassman receiver Anthony Ratliff Williams of North Carolina did not get an invite to the com- uh, invite to uh, the combine in Indianapolis. He's a big play receiver that's been moderately productive on a North Carolina offense that struggled the past two years. On the offensive line, I'm slightly surprised that Justin School of Vanderbilt who received the six-round grade entering the season and then played well in 2018, won't be in Indianapolis. The biggest non-invited player in the defensive front seven has to be Landis Durham of Texas A&M. He entered the season graded by scouts as a potential top 45 pick. His production was a little bit off this season, six and a half sacks and nine and a half tackles for losses as a senior compared to 10 and a half sacks and 12 tackles for loss the prior year. But I still think Durham really deserved an invitation. I was mildly surprised linebacker Khalil Hodge of Buffalo did not receive an invite. And in the secondary, I really believe Jimmy Moreland of James Madison, who blew up the Shrine game practices and then looked good at, uh, at senior bowl practices, as well as Isaiah Wharton from Rutgers, who looked good in his brief stint during Shrine Game practices. Both of those players deserve to be at the Combine. Now, have you heard if either Preston Williams, the receiver from Colorado State, or Louisiana Tech defensive end Jalen Ferguson will work out at the regional Combine? Obviously, they're not going to be allowed to work out in Indy. I've heard nothing on Williams as of yet. I'm told Ferguson is going to wait until his pro day before he works out. Now, one last thing on those guys. When we spoke on our podcast about Ferguson having his invitation pulled, which was literally hours after the combine had made their initial decision, I said that Ferguson, Jeffrey Simmons, and Preston Williams were going to have very busy months of March and April traveling around the country for private visits with NFL teams. As of yesterday, I was informed that Jalen Ferguson has 18 official visits on his schedule, which is a huge number at this point. Now, before we go any further, please support the Draft Analyst by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave a rating and a review. And if you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, at Draft Analyst One, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch with the show. Now, Tony, on Monday, you posted your pre-combine rankings from the Big Ten. Just before we recorded this on Tuesday, rankings for the Pac-12 went up. We'll quickly do a little film review. We'll start with the Big Ten. There isn't really much to discuss at Illinois, so we'll move to Indiana. What did you see with the Hoosiers? I like one of their combine invitees, Jonathan Crawford, the safety. He's instinctive. He's got solid ball skills, and I really feel he can line up as a dime back in zone coverage at the next level. When it comes to Maryland, we spoke about Ty Johnson during Shrine practices. We mentioned him earlier as a combine snub. Byron Cowart, a week later at the Senior Bowl, was a guy that we were impressed by when we saw him in Mobile. But neither player ended up being your favorite Terp on film. Who was that, Tony? Got to be hands down Derwin Gray, the offensive tackle, who, you know, coming into the season, I didn't expect much from, but he really impressed me on film. I don't know that he's going to be a left tackle at the next level, but I did like his footwork for a big man. I thought he had better than average agility. His strength was outstanding. I definitely believe that Gray has starting potential at the next level, whether it's on the left side or right side is still to be determined. Now, Michigan has a few headliners, defensive end Rashawn Gary, linebacker Devin Bush, But I know another defensive prospect caught your eye on the back end for the Wolverines. Yeah, David Long, the cornerback. Height may be an issue with Long because he's going to be under six feet tall. He may not even measure five foot 11, but he's a feisty corner with solid ball skills and someone I believe can line up in nickel packages at the next level. 
we'll say in the same state and actually at the same position, there's a Michigan State corner who's receiving a lot of buzz, a guy we've spoken about in the past. What can you tell us about Justin Lane, Tony? Yeah, a guy who, like you said, is getting a lot of buzz. Some people think he could be a late first-round pick if he runs well at the combine. I don't think so. I have him as a third-round selection right now. Maybe he can move into the second round, but he's got outstanding length. He's explosive. He has a good feel for the game. Terrific ball skills. I would recommend anybody go back and watch the Ohio State film because Lane shut down the Ohio State receivers, and they've got four guys on that field that can play at the next level at the receiver position. And Lane is a former receiver himself. He's only been playing cornerback for a couple of years. So there should be a lot of growth and development in his game and a lot of upside, right, Tony? Huge upside with Lane. I mean, he's a guy who's a good player now, but I think absolutely has starting potential down the road. And we jump to Ohio State where we have primarily defensive players and skilled players at the top of the board. But you actually came away most impressed with an offensive lineman and one we've discussed on this podcast before to boot. Yeah, Isaiah Prince. I I mean, he is a big mauling guy. When I watched the game film, it matched what I saw on television. A wide-body blocker who easily controls defenders at the point of attack. Doesn't have great footwork, but he's got solid footwork for a guy that's probably going to be about 325, 330 pounds. Don't think he's going to be a left tackle in the NFL, but I think he'll be a very good right tackle. Now, Penn State underclassman Sharif Miller finished the year with seven and a half sacks, 15 tackles for loss. Very good numbers for him. Tony, did the film match the stats? Absolutely. I mean, he was very explosive and quick off the edge, fast up the field, showed himself to be a real good and a natural pass rusher. I think he needs to add some bulk to his frame and get a little bit stronger, but I love Miller's upside. Let's move to the Pac-12 now, and we'll start with a player from Arizona who isn't getting much notoriety, and that's defensive tackle P.J. Johnson. Yeah, underclassman who entered the draft, was uh, a well-traveled college player before he finally settled in Arizona, not going to the combine, but he's a guy that's six foot four, 330 pounds. You know, when you watch the film, he stands out to you because of his size, explosive, quick, relatively athletic. He's got to improve his fundamentals, got to improve his ability to play uh, with knee bend. But a lot of people have compared him to Damon Harrison, the free agent who started for years for the New York Jets, signed a huge contract with the New York Giants and played last year with the Detroit Lions. Now we'll take a look up the coast and look at Cal. I know they have a linebacker you like, wasn't invited to the combine, but what'd you see from Jordan Kanashik? Yeah, Kanashik, he's not the fastest guy, but he's got great instincts and awareness, constantly around the ball, making uh, positive plays. He basically makes plays with his instincts and his ability to understand what's going to happen before it actually happens. I think he's a nickel linebacker at the next level who can play special teams. Onto Westwood, and we'll take a look at the UCLA Bruins. They have three combine invitees, but just like Cal, it's actually a player who won't be an Indy who caught your eye most on film. Yeah, cornerback Nathan Meters. Terrific ball skills. One of the few college cornerbacks who really does a good job making plays when his back is to the ball. He gets his head back around and locates the pass in the air. Speed is a big question for meters, and it's that 40 time during the pro day workout at UCLA that will determine whether or not he's going to slide into the late rounds. During the Senior Bowl, we raved about USC's Chuma Adoga after every practice. After watching the game film, Tony, do you still feel the same buzz, that same feeling inside about his next level potential that you got in Mobile? 
Not really. I thought he was much better in Mobile the three days of practice than what I saw on film. He was solid on film, but he wasn't spectacular. He wasn't special like he showed us in Mobile. He showed a little bit of stiffness. Primarily lined up at right tackle last year for uh, USC. It's going to be more of a left tackle or even a guard at the next level. But he put it all together at the Senior Bowl, which I think benefits him. Another player who impressed at the Senior Bowl and a player who's gotten a lot of publicity is Washington tackle Caleb McGarry. What was your final evaluation of him after watching the Huskies film? I really like him as a third-round right tackle prospect. He's mean. He's powerful. He's a terrific run blocker who holds his own in pass protection. Not really effective in motion, not effective on the second level, a little bit heavy-footed, but I definitely think he's got starting potential at right tackle in the NFL. And that's all for the 41st episode of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, Please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. Tony will be arriving in Indianapolis on Wednesday, so make sure you head over to draftanalyst.com for all the latest from the Combine and check out our Big Ten and Pac-12 rankings that are up on the site now. We'll be back soon to discuss everything about the Combine, but for now, on behalf of Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. Good night.